0: Many times, there is a big difference between what we want and what we need. Now, when what we need is made clear to us, we may feel that it's too difficult for us. How can I do this? Or, as is often the case, what we need We just feel that if we were to do this, it would cause us more pain than what we think we can bear. And I know what I'm talking about here. I don't have to go into detail, but I experienced this for most of the year in which I turned 30, which was my fifth year of following Jesus. So I'm not going to go into this in any more depth, but I don't want to reduce this real pain of the struggle we all go through down to a cheap sports cliche. However, the coaches may be right when they tell us, no pain, no gain. And this is essentially what Jesus is teaching his disciples at the beginning of our scripture reading this morning. He goes on then to explain two alternatives and their end results. What he says is to try to gain life with our own efforts and goals results in loss. But to lose our life for his sake, taking up his cross is the way that we actually find life. He then illustrates this from the Psalms of David. When it seems the enemy is just going to knock us down and out, we may call on the powerful, gracious covenant God we may call upon him to lift us up. Then he reveals all his glory to his inner circle of apostles so that they know he can and will supply them with all they need to take up their cross and lose their life for his sake. So now let's dig deep to know God and his will, and to have our faith built up by the Holy Spirit and the word he inspired. So we know that God will give us grace and strength to do what we need to do. So I've divided our readings into two halves. I think they work perfectly. They're, they're different, but they build on each other. And I'm going to incorporate the psalm into the first part. So first, Jesus tells his disciple what he expects of them and what their reward will be when he comes in the glory of his father. There's three sections in this part. First, in summary, Jesus says that those desiring to come to him must die for his sake to find life. So let's go through this line by line, word by word. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if any is desiring to come after me, he must deny himself and he must take up his cross, and he must be following me. Okay, the denial of self. All right. We all have thoughts, feelings, and abilities that define us and fulfill us. That's our opinion, and it's not easy to let go of any of these qualities. We feel this is what we're all about However, this is exactly what Jesus requires of his disciples. We have to give up something that we feel is very important to us. So in order to take up our cross and follow Jesus, that means to die. Now, he has just told them, if you look up a few verses, if your Bibles are open, he had just told them immediately before this that he's going to Jerusalem to suffer and die and then to live again. Just as he will die to live again, he's now telling his disciples that they must learn death is required to enter life. And then he continues on, for whoever may be desiring to save his life will destroy it. But whoever may lose his life for my sake will find it. Okay, so he's saying here self-desire is destructive. If we want to keep our identity totally unchanged, we will end up destroyed. So lose it for Jesus. However, he says, if we are willing to give our identity to God for the sake of who Jesus is and what he has done, we will find the life for which God has made us. But first, we must die to ourselves because death is required. To enter life, true life, life that is life. And then he concludes this section by saying, For what will a man gain if he may win the whole world and lose his life? Or what will a man give in exchange for his life? So here's a twofold warning in the form of questions, and I'm going to personalize it now. If gaining every, is gaining everything in the world, we've got to ask that. Is gaining everything in the world worth losing my life? And once my life is lost, do I have enough to buy it back? And an honest answer to these questions, namely no and no, allows us to accept this hard truth. Death is required to enter life. We can't do it on our own. Now I'm going to flip back to the psalm because it fits here perfectly. And we can sum up what David said here. He's praying for grace to be raised up over his enemies. So let me go through David's words. And and, and it's pretty powerful what he actually said. They will whisper together about me, all hating me they will plan evil to me because they are saying a thing of wickedness is being poured out in him and he has laid down and will not rise again. So what's going on here? David is talking about wicked people who are hating him. In fact, together they're planning evil for him. They're speaking of death. They seek to take his life. So, what Jesus is asking his followers to do in order that they will give up their lives for him, he's asking them this in the context of a world where wicked people are already seeking to take their lives. Who would you rather give your life to, wicked people or Jesus? David continues... Even the man of my peace, in him who is eating my bread, he has made great upon me his heel. Now that's Hebrew idiom, you put the object before the subject. So he's being crushed under the heel of his friend. His trusted friend that he trusted to keep peace in his life is now seeking to crush him and bringing him down. But now he comes to his prayer. In the context of all of this going wrong, he says, and thou, Yahweh, must be gracious to me, and thou must raise me up, and I will recompense them. So David petitions God for grace in the face of enemy death threats, and the violence of a friend. And then he requested to be lifted up from death to life. And he makes this request based on God's principle, his longstanding principle in his way that death is required to enter life. I'm in danger of death, give me life, please. And then this last big word, recompense, David's plan is that he will respond to these people according to how they have treated him. We're now ready to go back to Matthew's gospel. So he concludes this first half by saying, the Son of Man is about to come and will reward each according to his works, and some of you will see the kingdom come. So let's go through it again, word for word. For the Son of Man is being about to come in the glory of his Father and his angels. Think about this. This is kind of mind-blowing. Here we have Jesus talking about his second coming as imminent even before he's completed the mission of his first coming. I mean, mean, don't miss that. That's, like, wild. And then he says he will come in the full glory of his Father God. And what's he doing here? You know, for all the people that want to say Jesus isn't God and the Trinity isn't true, with this he's declaring himself to be God. And then he shall reward or recompense to each man according to to his works. And I very carefully looked at the vocabulary this week. Jesus is using the exact same word that David used in the psalm we heard this morning. However, he's quoting a different psalm. He's quoting the very last line of Psalm 62, for thou dost recompense each man according to to his work. And let me just say, because of my top 10 scriptures, no doubt, maybe even top five, Psalm 62, 11, and 12 are very meaningful to me, so let me read them to you. Once God has spoken, twice I have heard this, that power belongs to God, and that you, Adonai... Belong steadfast love, for you recompense or render to a man according to his worth. I think this is awesome that God is both power and love. How often in this world are powerful people unloving and loving people weak? God is both. That is amazing. And so, because of that, God can respond to people in kind. You see, and this is something that people sometimes forget. They think, oh, I just have faith in God and that's all I need. What we do matters because, hear me, hear me, God responds to us. He recompenses us as we respond to his grace. God has given us everything. Will we receive it and will we be thankful to him for it? And as our way of thanking him, will we do what he has asked us to do? And then Jesus concludes this portion. Truly, I am saying to you all that some of those... Who have stood here in no way might taste death until they see the son of man coming in his kingdom. In that no way may they. That's the strongest statement that can be made in human language. Now. Now. Here, Jesus is not talking about his second coming. I agree with what D.A. Carson has in his commentary. What he is saying in essence here is some of his disciples will still be alive when the church, which is part of God's kingdom. It's not all of God's kingdom, but it's his beachhead on earth. When it grows, and think about what we see in Acts, that's what's being talked about here, the end of the book of Acts. They went from 120 disciples to 3,000 in just one day, and then the church spread and added non-Jews in Antioch, Asia Minor, Macedonia, and Achaia, all the way to Rome, all before Paul was executed in 68 A.D., less than 40 years after Jesus said this. And now let's go on to the second part because it follows and explains the first part. On a high mountain, Jesus is transformed in front of his inner circle and his father commands people to hear his beloved son. Again, there's two parts to this particular incident or event. First of all, Jesus is transformed to shine brighter than the sun, and Moses and Elijah appear with him, and Peter responds. So we're told after six days, Jesus is taking Peter and James and his brother John and is bringing them into a high mountain apart. Okay, so what's going here? you will see as you read through the Gospels that of the 12 apostles, Jesus had an inner circle of three. Peter, James, and his younger brother, John. They were somewhat chosen out of the 12. Now, just out of interest, uh, and, and again, a commentary talked about this, this high mountain is most likely Mount And you can Google it. I did that this week. It turns out it's Israel's highest mountain. Now, you know, it's not like the Rockies. It's about 4,000 feet above sea level. But what's really interesting and why it fits this passage is it's only 10 miles northwest of Capernaum on the Sea of Galilee. That would be a half day's journey for them. So Jesus takes them up this mountain, and what's he want to do? I believe he wants to recharge his disciples after that very difficult teaching that he has given them on denial and death. He says, you need some time to process this with me. And he's transformed before them. His face shined as the sun, and his clothing became white as the light. Okay, transformation. Now think about this. This is the first time that the glory of his divine nature has ever broken through his human flesh while he's on earth. We're told the face of Jesus shined like the sun, and even his clothes became the brightest white. And I love that the King James translates every word. Some of these modern translations don't. Behold, what this is saying is, wake up, something's happening here. Moses and Elijah appeared to them talking with him. Now Moses represents the Torah, the beginning of the Bible, the five books that tell us all we need to know about God in the beginning. But Elijah, even though he never had any writings that survived, he represents all the writing prophets, including those who wrote the historical books like Joshua, Judges, and beyond. And their appearance must have been startling. Not only is Jesus uh, you know transformed and glowing, and we talked about this in our Bible study this week. Guess what? Moses and Elijah aren't dead; they're alive hundreds of years later, and talking with Jesus. How cool is that? But Peter answered Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. And if you're desiring, I will make three tabernacles here, one for thee, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He begins by assuming that it's good for all three of them to be with Jesus at this time, at this event. And then he personally offers to build a tent for Jesus and two people that God used in a mighty way. Now, I'll admit I didn't dig around in this much. I don't have anything much to say about this. You know, it's kind of silly what Peter's saying, but, but what would you do? if all of a sudden you saw Jesus transfigured and two famous people with him. So we'll just pass on and go to the important thing because what happens here is it's all explained. A voice from an overshadowing bright cloud says, this is my beloved son in whom I am pleased. You all must listen to him. And the disciples fear greatly. There's a lot here. Let's look at it. Yet while he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice is saying from the cloud, this is being my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. You all must be listening to him. So here we have a paradox right up front. And, and as I said in my prayer, everything about God is paradoxical. It would seem opposite to us, but it's perfectly consistent within God, so think about it, a bright cloud is casting, is being a shadow over them, overshadowing them. It blocked the sun, okay? But it became a temporary dwelling presence, or in Hebrew, Shekinah. Shekinah, the verb, means to dwell. Shekinah is a noun of a dwelling presence, the Father with Jesus and his disciples. And Father God calls Jesus his beloved son, and he says he's well-pleased in his son. But don't miss this about obedience. Listening means to obey. Listening isn't just let words pass through our brains and don't do anything about this. If we really hear what someone is saying, especially God, we will do it. So he's saying, finally, they must obey him. And think about it. This anticipates the end of Matthew's gospel when Jesus tells his disciples to teach the people of all nations to obey everything he has commanded them. And the disciples, having heard fell on their face, very much afraid. Now, I've said this over and over again, to fall on our face before someone, especially God, is to have deep worship. So their first response was to worship. But the event, the voice, the words, all put the fear of God in the disciples. Now, people, hear me, please, please. This wasn't just for them back then. When we truly hear God, and this is a way to examine ourselves, when we hear him, we are left reverentially, worshipfully fearing him. Is that what we do? Do we say, wow, the awesome God has asked me to do something? And do we just get quiet before him? Because those who truly hear God will fear him, at least in a reverential, worshipful sense, desiring to do what he says. So here they are, flat on their faces, In fear and trembling, but Jesus came and having touched them, he said, You all must be raised up and you all must not be afraid. Now, I think it is good that they responded in humility to all that God was doing to them, but now Jesus is indicating he wants them to serve him. And to do this, they need to be on their feet. To fulfill his purpose for them. Now, I've put in the notes, look at Luke chapter 1 in Zechariah's prophetic prayer as John, his son, John the Baptist was born. And the key to this is he says, God is sending a savior to enable us to serve him without fear all of our days. That's what Jesus is saying to them here. Yes, worship me, be in awe of me, but serve me without fear. Then when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus only, only Jesus. As I reflected on this, if we can only see one person, that person needs to be Jesus. He should be the focus of our life. All of our thoughts, feelings, attitudes, actions. And you see, people are blessed who always put Jesus first. So that's the bottom line of our passage. And now I believe this summarizes all that we've heard this morning. These events were for the purpose of they acted on them to increase their faith in both the person of Jesus Christ and the mission of Jesus. The difficult teaching, but also the awesome understanding of who Jesus is and how he will enable them. So let's pull this all together. All who desire to come after Jesus must take up their cross with him for his sake in order to find life. And then they may pray for God's grace to lift them up to be rewarded at his second coming. And then in order to increase their faith the faith of his followers, Jesus was brilliantly transformed on a high mountain as his father blessed him and then called his fearful disciples to obedience, obedience to his words. And if there's just one thing we walk out of here today, let us understand, as painful as it may be, death is required to enter fully into life.